Welcome to an amazing episode of the Adventures in DevOps podcast. I am your host for today, Jonathan Hall. And here in the virtual studio, I'm excited to have Will Button. Hello, everyone. And we have a special guest today, Benjamin Johnson. Hi, Benjamin. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Glad you made it. So you're calling in from the the Dallas area, if I'm correct. That's right. Go Cowboys. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Yes. So before we dive into the topic today, uh, Benjamin, why don't you give us a little bit of a introduction? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and and maybe how DevOps fits into your life. Yeah, sure. So I'm the CEO of Particle 41. We're a, a full-service uh, software consultancy. So of course, we do custom application development, uh, data science or data engineering, rather, and then DevOps. And so uh, if I give a, a little bit of history here. Uh, I did a, my, early in my career, I did a travel company, you know, think Orbit's Travelocity Expedia. The brand was called One Travel. And in, in that company, it was 99 when we started it. And uh, I had a rack and stack my own hardware. Like, who does that? And, you know, I also run, you know, not many of my peers have experienced something like that, where we were having to run our own BGP routing to make sure we had multiple sources of internet. Uh, the founder of that business wanted to build their data center into like small town, West Texas. So um, imagine a storefront building with brick inside a brick and 250 white box servers running, you know, like an Altion load balancer. So I'm super dating myself, um, but we learned a ton, right? We learned about how the internet really works at a, at a super core level. And then from there, I went into a travel media company um, and, uh, you know, we we're selling ads between these destination guide websites and, um, uh, and top line travel advertisers. And, uh, you know, we had to adopt the cloud because the data profile that we were getting, like you couldn't buy hardware big enough, fast enough to process impression level data off of, off of websites. So I uh, was an early AWS adopter um, and then repeated some of the same uh, types of technology with a financial brand called Investing Channel that's still around today, um, but just had to embrace DevOps because even though the business was, say, 20, 30 million in total rev, we'd have to pr- spend a, a pretty decent percentage of that in uh, online internet technology to deliver you know, the best ads to the best people and process all that data and make real-time decisions on on those ad calls. Um, so, you know, I was using Hadoop the first day it was launched, definitely trying to um, run elastic uh, data nodes and, and all of that and, and just build all the scar tissue from the early cloud adoption. Uh, and then back in 2012, my partner, uh, a friend of mine uh, who, you know, I've been working with throughout my career, he and I went into business together and we started Particle 41 to really take uh, the custom application development that we were encountering, the data engineering stuff we were encountering in the DevOps and kind of pull it together in a complete kind of engineering in a box um, consulting company. So the big question I think everybody listening is wondering about is how did you choose that name? 
<laughs> oh, great. Okay. So yeah. So I love that. Um, I love this question. So particle 41, uh, if you go to the 41st element in the periodic table, it is uh, niobium and uh, niobium, not something I wanted to call the company. Uh, but I don't know, uh, growing up in the eighties, there was this junk jewelry that was like a pop metal jewelry and it had like an anodized sheen. Well, that was niobium jewelry, that kind of rainbow anodized mm -hmm. metal. Um, and so super popular in the eighties, but in the medical, in the metallurgical process, in making alloys and molding metal, they will combine amounts of niobium with steel, with the steel alloy to make it uh, stronger, more flexible, and look a little better because then you could sheen it, you could anodize it and give it color. Mm. And so uh, when I learned the use of niobium, particle 41 uh, just kind of clicked for us. And so yeah. uh, we ran with that name. Yeah, That's clever. <laughs> I like that. That might be my favorite naming story I've heard in the, at least in a long time. Maybe. Oh, uh, you guys are too Seriously. kind. Yeah. But we, we think when, you know, combining our, our essential elements and core values with the company, we can help you be stronger, more flexible, and uh, maybe even look a little better, make your products look a little better. Right. Shinier. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, is it true what they say that everything is bigger in Texas? Does that apply to DevOps too? Is DevOps bigger in Texas? <laughs> so I've been super involved in the, in the past, I've been super involved in the community here. Uh, DevOps days DFW is definitely a stellar event. Keeps getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, and yeah, everything's bigger in Texas. Um, I also was a co facilitator of the DevOps live. I think we're starting to meet again. Um, and, and so, yeah, the DevOps community has been great here. You've had a lot of recovering financial institutions. Uh, when I say recovering, like recovering from the dinosaur IT ages and getting into DevOps. So you've had, you know, Capital One is here. They've been on the cutting edge of, of uh, moving into cloud for a financial company. Um, and then we have a lot of telecom uh, stuff going around. So there's a good community here that uh, leans, um, you know, leans to enterprise. Yeah, DevOps Austin is a a big. That's a fun time. Yeah, for sure. it is. Yeah, I've been there a couple times. Um, I actually grew up just about halfway between Austin and Dallas, and so I usually apply to DevOps Austin every year to speak and just turn it into a trip to see my parents. I haven't been to DevOps DFW yet, but I've heard that it's on par with DevOps Austin. Yeah, yeah, we have a good time. Uh, yeah, we sponsored this year. We had a table and, you know, talking about um, talking about our services. We had a really good time. They treated us well. So what kind of clients does Particle 41 mostly work with? I mean, you just talked about some of these sort of recovering financial companies. Uh, uh, is that who you work with or do you work with a different uh, sort of demographic? Um, I, I would say we're Miniprise. You know, we, we've worked with a couple of folks. Um, you know, we've worked with Raytheon in the past. We've uh, worked with some large enterprise payment processor type companies. Um, but we've, of course, done, you know, startups wanting to go to market with the next greatest mobile app. Um, you know, so, you know, the, there's that gamut between um, that enterprise level. Uh, we, we'd love to do enterprise clients um, with our DevOps teams. But what we're finding in that enterprise is... Um, you know, what kind of DevOps are they ready for and how can we meet that need through kind of a, a, a more productized service? 
So we really have focused on making sure that the setup is super smooth. So do we have all of our Terraform libraries? Can we quick launch them? Um, you know, get through that setup, get them to pipelines, and then figure out, you know, what are the needs from there? Um, and most of our engagements, we're combining the development, the DevOps, and, um, you know, project management, QA, you know, all the services to have a complete team. One thing I hear uh, lately, especially on LinkedIn, I think there's been a paid advertisement on this topic lately, the meme that DevOps is dead, long live platform engineering. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I love this discussion, I think, um, because we see varying maturities uh, around the enterprise. So that, you know, if you're getting to be a larger organization, um, you're motivated based on your scale to, you know, do things properly. So you go through, uh, you know, several iterations. And I think um, if I can go back a little bit into the, the story here, where you, you're racking and stacking your own hardware, when you come from that, you need these teammates that are just all about the infrastructure. But now we've gone through this shift where you know a lot of that is automated. And um, we're just seeing a lot of trouble when the initial higher-ups discussion, so the discussion with me to establish the team, is really about preparing the pri- pipelines. And we are successful in delivering that, hopefully quicker and quicker as, as much as we, we seem to be repeating ourselves. And, um, and then we get to this piece where they can't quite let go. And of course, financially, that's great, right? You can't let go of some folks that are on my team. I love that. But yeah. we, we often see it wrapped in um, some uh, less than great uh, activities like blame. Like, okay, this pipeline didn't run. Okay, well, was it code drift? Okay, when the code was edited, were the deployments tested again? And were the developers able to participate in that since they're the change owner? And we see all these kind of conflicts where they can't quite let go of what it what I think the meme is really talking about is this new form of cloud ops that DevOps sometimes get pigeonholed into. Oh, that's the Terraform code. We need the DevOps guys to touch that. And um and and you know, we we're just constantly trying to counsel through that increased understanding that the developers need to have with some additional parts of the ecosystem. In my experience, DevOps is very, like it's a really broad term and working from one company to the next, it's it's very different. And in many cases, the only thing consistent in DevOps from one company to the next is the fact that they're both using the same word, DevOps. How do you productize that across multiple clients and, and keep your your team feeling like they have some level of sanity and control? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the metrics I'm really proud of in my business is our level of attrition. It's been dangerously close to zero um, just over this entire, uh, you know, COVID, post-COVID, uh, the great reset or great resignation, whatever you want to call it. Um, we've actually seen our clients suffering with a higher amount of turnover on their teams than what we're experiencing. And I think it's because working for a boutique services firm, you're able to focus on your craft. And even if you're engaged with a particular client, you're able to hear about and get exposure to the kind of the, the DevOps philosophy around these other clients. So you're either like, wow, this, this place isn't comparing in a negative way. I need to help it improve. So you're, you're offering some maybe more advanced counsel as a DevOps engineer 
to them to kind of pull them along. Or you're in some place that's, you know, got their EKS clusters all orchestrated and it's awesome. And they're right on the edge trying to think of their service mesh options. And, and you're sharing that with the internal hive mind at Particle and you're able to get you know, really expertise is currency internally. And we really, you know, exercise that point. And so I, I think that's why we've been able to really, you know, hang on to people. And then the idea that we're exploring more ways to sell kind of DevOps as a service, productize and patternize the, the, the practice of pipeline development or platform engineering, um, and then recognize those different levels of maturity and pull people along. I think that's made for a really fun time for all of us. Yeah, it seems like that's a great mix of getting the entertainment value out of your job because you get to, you don't get stuck doing the same task day after day and you get to see all the different aspects of it. Yeah, for sure. And then I think the antithesis of that is in a corporation, you're probably more aligned with like the, stock price or the uh, revenue. And as a DevOps engineer, you care about those things because you want to understand the, the vibrance of your company. You're you know, a professional, so you, you definitely have a business mind and, and you want to know about those things, but it's not front of your mind what you care about. You care about you know, advancing your career, solving those uh, scalability problems, and um, you know, knowing that you can advance that DevOps posture you know, th- those are kind of high of, you know, high on your mind. And so I think when, when you're inside a service company, you really get that difference in priority of focusing on the craft, productizing and patternizing repetitive things that we're seeing across clients. And you get to invest in that uh, rather than being, um, you know, have to go to that next all hands meeting about how we're going to raise the stock price where you feel so indirectly correlated to that uh, in your role. I'm curious how, um, how you do DevOps as a service because um, you know, I, I can I can imagine and in fact I've I've seen this done poorly at some companies where it's it's kind of just basically DevOps is their silo that we offshore. And you know, once DevOps is in a silo is it sorry. Once DevOps is in a silo, it's not DevOps anymore. Uh, you know, since right. DevOps is all about tearing down silos. So um, how do, how do you sort of address that that tension with companies? And do you have companies trying to, to put it in a silo? And, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, so um, I think we have to start talking about uh, the role of, and this is why I think the platform engineering conversation is so healthy, because we're able to use that vocabulary that that there's some good writings, a uh, really good Medium article um, that you can kind of use to, to kind of educate yourself on that, the difference and you have to express that. Like we're responsible for the pipelines, but how can we empower your developers? And so we definitely have two very distinct pricing models. Like you can um, have a dedicated individual or dedicated individuals on your team to help you accelerate that you know, pipeline. But then we're desperately seeking to try to uh, evolve that back into the team, get the developers to self-serve, make sure we've provided good documentation. Um, and um, But at the same time, we also want to be there for the next time additional pipeline is needed. So if they are sprinting towards a particular product goal and with that product goal comes a new data architecture or whatever, 
then they can lean on our team and we go into more of a fractional pricing model. So rather than paying for a full-time dedicated person, we have a, a lesser than pricing. And then also, since we have people in the US, we have people in Argentina and we have people in India, we're also willing to help them with some of the SRE roles like the full-time monitoring. And so we're really, I, I guess I use the word exploiting both the, the, the IT part of the misconception, which is not really DevOps, but the ops portion, and then also really trying to define why you would want to ex, uh, accelerate your pipeline development so that you don't have to, you know, so we can come in, do that, uh, kind of give you the keys to the kingdom, help you self-serve. Um, but also if you need ongoing support and you want that insurance um, that you have somebody to go to in times of need and get some of that SRE type support, we can do that too. So I just read a, a an article earlier this morning that kind of aligns with what we're talking about here. It's from David Heinemeyer Hansen, who's the founder of Ruby on Rails and yeah. CTO of 37 Signals. Yeah, all of that stuff. His article says, we stand to save $7 million over five years from our cloud exit. And so they're going to a data center, racking and stacking their own servers. And when I read that article, I mean, I just broke out into a cold sweat because I remember... <laughs> I remember driving to the data center in the middle of the night, you know, going in, replacing hard drives and pulling servers out of racks. And like you mentioned at the beginning of, of this episode, you know, setting BGP routes and, and all of that stuff. And I don't miss doing any of that. Right. But um, and I'm not really sure that they're going to save as much as they think they are. Yeah. But what what are your thoughts on that? So anytime I would do this calculation and, and mind, I think David DHH has a different problem that he's trying to solve than the average business. So if I, he probably has a very uh, static equation of what, what kind of hardware, what kind of compute he needs to run his business, right? I mean, he has an established SaaS company. So his revenue is is at a certain place, the amount of compute he needs, he knows what that is. I I think that's a lot different than an up-and-coming customer that's looking to scale. So if you're a startup or you're an enterprise, maybe you're even an enterprise wanting to do a new thing, you know at the beginning that that thing is going to be low. Your usage of that new thing needs to go through the adoption curve. And so the cloud is super great. You can't do this equation. Like, what if I had to go ask uh, my board for, you know, five big beefy servers right now? I'd be asking for probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to have a, a, an infrastructure that I thought would last me the next five to, you know, five years. Right. And so I'd go ask for this big chunk of money and they'd be, okay, well, what ROI are you going to get? Well, I, I, this is new. I'm trying this thing out. I mean, I'm not totally sure. That conversation goes very poorly, right? Because you're asking, <laughs> yeah. you're asking somebody to take a risk with little to no guarantee of return. Um, and that's where the cloud just totally accelerates. So I think his context is, is, is just very different here. Um, it makes for a good provocative article but he is trying to solve a very known problem. And, um, you know, the cloud is there for these unknown problems. Um, and then, you know, I, I mean, God forbid he have a, a decrease in volume or a big shift upwards. 
you know, he's going to have to absorb that one way or the other, right? And this is where the cloud is just, you know, really excels. And uh, I don't ever try to convince a client that the cloud would be cheaper. Um, but in most of my calculations, I've seen like a 24 month, uh, you know, break even um, on that initial investment to when I think the cloud is starting to edge up. But then the good news is if the cloud is edging up in 24 months, that means you've been successful. You've had to scale up. You've had to turn on the You've had to throw some hardware at the problem. And so that's probably a good problem to have. Um, so yeah, that's my take on that is, as I think he's, his context is different than the, uh, you know, the 80% case that we see in the market. I right agree. On. And my, my biggest complaint about the articles that he's written on this topic is that they, they don't make that clear. He, he kind of almost preaches as a, and a lot of people interpret his words as gospel, like, oh, if yeah. DHH does it, we all have to do it. And that's sure. like, you're not Google and you're not DHH. Uh, take that into account when you're deciding <laughs> how to run your own business. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, I did think that he, uh, history has, you know, they, they wrote um, the remote book about yeah. working remote. And man, did they get a winner on on that one just with the way COVID played out. You know, it's, yeah. you couldn't have been more lucky to write that remote working book and then a couple of years later have that happen. Uh, just have everybody forced into a remote situation. So they've definitely, uh, you know, I was a Ruby developer for a long time. Um, so I'm, I'm appreciative of the contribution uh, Ruby on Rails made. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, we got shock jockeys in every industry, right? Not just the... Uh, not just in radio. Yeah, fair point. So do you focus on clients in, or do you target clients in the Dallas area or do you go anywhere? No, no we've been uh, we've been remote since the inception. Um, we have clients on the West Coast. We have clients on the East Coast. Uh, yeah, we're, we're completely location agnostic that we do generally only serve US-based clients. Um, okay, but yeah, we're about a hundred people, uh, sixty in India, uh, about twenty in uh, near shore, and, and twenty U.S. and mostly U.S. is design, talent, project managers, uh, that kind of more of the high level consulting in the U.S. Do you have any fun stories you can tell us about uh, a particularly challenging, uh, maybe? Uh, I don't know if you want to, if you're, I don't want to ask you to tell us the client's name unless you just know that you can, but can you, you have an interesting story, a DevOps story you can tell us that uh, is funny or encouraging or, or anything like that? Well, um, I don't know. Maybe it would be fun to talk about those racking and stacking days. I feel like we were doing DevOps before Patrick Dubois coined it DevOps. We were doing some flavor of that. Uh, but um, in that, storefront we had the 250 white box servers altion load balancers i don't know if you guys ever had to tinker with one of those uh no altion um, altion got bought by nortel so you might have had to mess with a nortel load balancer uh but we were so we had to pay local loop to get internet from dallas to west texas to odessa midland uh, we had a brick inside a brick building with a diesel generator sitting outside. And uh, we were running cold fusion. And then some, 
some C++ extensions behind that that would actually interact with the travel GDS mainframes. So we're getting the pricing data off the GDS mainframes so you can price the tickets and show availability and all of that wonderful stuff. Uh, but we were serving it through a cold fusion backend and it was not scaling. It was shooting sparks like horribly. <laughs> and uh, we ended up landing Sidestep, which is a big uh, travel brand and Kayak. And so we just were absolutely shooting sparks, uh, rebooting servers all the time. It was really, really rough. And uh, then the CEO called us because somebody was having trouble shopping on a 56K modem. And it became <laughs> the biggest issue that uh, they found out that they still had a good percentage of users on 56K modems. Um, and we found out that it was some kind of buffer issue in the end. But this discussion between the hardware guy trying to figure out how the packets were flowing through our own upper tier infrastructure uh, to, to figure out why like half the page or a quarter of the page was loading on 56K modem and, and then just stopping. So we had to optimize the buffer for these 56K modems. And uh, just, I think the the guy on the infrastructure side, his name is Chris Fromm. Uh, he's a, he's a um, DevOps guy now. And he was my hardware counterpart. And I was kind of responsible for the software. He was responsible for the hardware. But we still talk to this day about, um, you know, how we approach like CICD we had scripts that would run and deploy all of the cold fusion code to all those different machines. And we were doing some really interesting stuff to allow the developers to self-serve. And, um, and so, yeah, we just, it was awesome to be kind of in the sweatshop with, uh, some hardware counterparts. And now, uh, you know, hopefully those guys are like some of your best SREs right now that have had to go through those war stories and have the, you know, have the, um, scar tissue to come out of those battles. I love those old stories. Back when full stack had a completely different meaning. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. For sure. Was there a big um, presence? Like Odessa Midland is like primarily an oil town. Was there a big presence for technology when y'all were there? No. All my teammates, uh, all my local teammates came from the local like ITT Technical Institute that showed some you know high aptitude. We eventually converted everything to like a .NET stack um, in early C# -sharp days. Um, we're able to you know the uh, the original founder that wanted to do everything kind of hyper local, you know, right there in Odessa. He eventually moved on. A new guy was hired. Uh, that I reported to, and we ended up moving to like a Dallas Colo and having 50% less cost for, you know, way better service, you know, having 24 hour hands-on support inside the data center, you know, it was phenomenal to retire all those, um, all those white box servers in the, this kind of makeshift data center. Um, but I, I just, I super value the learning because, um, you know, I think it gave a real full full stack context to problems. So you don't tend to meet like my teammates don't tend to come out of college with this much generalism as what that kind of school of hard knocks, you know, gave myself and my peers. You know, we kind of 
kind of seeing the whole, you know, a part of the stack that you just don't see anymore. Um, occasionally you guys probably run into peers where you're like, well, we need to organize the ciders. And they're like, what's a cider again? Network topology, uh, you know, and you kind of have to clear that up or when's the last time you had to work with a VLAN, you know? So you, you appreciate being able to understand some of these topics when I'm a, you know, I'm a coder by, by background. Yeah. I, I honestly think that's a big part of our role as we're getting older, you know, cause I've, I'm ready to admit it. I'm old now, but I think there's a lot of like contextual knowledge, like things that we did because there wasn't an alternative back then that that's a solved problem. But some newer people who are just getting started don't realize that that's a solved problem. And and every once in a while, I come across someone who's trying to resolve that problem because they didn't know that it's a problem that's been solved for 30 or 40 years and so I think that's a, a large part of our role as senior uh, engineers or senior managers in this industry is to make sure that we're sharing the knowledge. It, I almost liken it to, you know, sitting around the campfire sharing stories about the tribe, you know, so that the future generations have that knowledge to build on top of rather than reinventing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think my first chef project was, uh, you know, had so many anti-patterns in there. I was pulling, uh, you know, I was pulling in the source directly into my chef repo and then, you know, saw some, the Burke, the Burke shelf way. And I was like, damn it, I've done, you know, everything I've done to this point was wrong. And, you know, I had to go <laughs> spend a weekend refactoring my chef code to be more best practice. Um, but I think, yeah, we have those hard, hard knocks so that, it, you know, if we, we saw a friend picking up something, we'd say, hey, you know, this is how you organize it. This is how you keep from repeating those same mistakes. Make sure you look at this article about anti-patterns. Um, and it's cool that you say that, Will, because I think we'll see a lot of that with the, you know, coding by chat GPT. Like, well, I got this, I got this off. It's, it's going to be even beyond uh, just going and monkey patching with Stack Overflow to be like, well, hey, I, I, I got completely running code, but I don't really know how it works. I just knew what to ask um, ChatGPT to write for me, which I, you know, we encourage people to be productive and accelerate themselves, but you still have to know how it works. You still have to know what you're putting down and, and committing to the code base. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the fact that you didn't write it doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of what it does. Right, right. And the guy that sees your code next is a serial killer that knows where you live. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so. People forget that. And, you know, I, I think you, you have a lot of the same responsibility, even just pulling in a dependency, you know. You, yeah, you that's right. You can't trust that that dependency is safe necessarily. So. Um, that is probably on DevOps security. This has reached a really high-level importance inside of some materials we have. So in some of our playbooks, cloud solution workbooks and stuff, we're really talking about that static code analysis as the difference between being like a DevOps maturity level two and level three, because you at least care about the the supply chain pipeline that you're pulling in and um, love all the work that has been gone in the Sonar Cube and some of the other static code element check marks. Um, some of those tools, we're really encouraging clients to incorporate those sooner than later, 
um, because we're seeing, uh, you know, when you have the Neo4j thing come out, like people who had those things already implemented, they that was great because then they could go, okay, well, we need to test all the, or, you know, we need to deploy all of these pieces of software, update the minor version and deploy them out. I can't tell you how many clients, though, um, had like a single Jenkins box and everybody went to go fix the NeoJ for dependency all at the same time. And they're like, they realized we've never done this. We've never, like, most, like the, out of all the code we have in our enterprise, most of it is static. So having to go through something like that, you know, it's first awesome that you had some kind of static code analysis to know that it needed to be addressed and you had that inventory. Some people didn't even have that. So they were, they were totally rummaging through the code junk drawer to figure out what needed to get ed- edited. But then the people that did know that went to go fix it quickly and realized that their pipeline was not HA in any way, shape, or form. So given your experience with a large number of different organizations and different types of applications, what are some of your go-to favorite tools to use in a DevOps space? Ones that like, whenever you show up, you're like, this is what we got to roll out first. And this is my my favorite version of it. Yeah. So, I mean, we're definitely heavily invested in the HashiCorp tool chain. Um, we're definitely going to recommend managed services over any kind of role your own. Um, and uh, we have not necessarily specialized on any particular framework or coding standard, but we love frameworks. So we're definitely, if somebody says, hey, we're, we're kind of a Java shop, then we might introduce Spring Boot and Kotlin, move them away from uh, the, the overhead of Java, but still give them that Spring Boot framework experience that they want. Um, but we're definitely going to say, hey, let's do a framework because that's easy for me to manage best practices against. And then, um, you know, see if they have any kind of other language leanings or whatever going on in the organization. And we'll kind of, Roll that way. Um, definitely agile, you know, scrum methodologies in terms of execution practice. We bring a lot of Terraform with us. So, you know, we have Terraform playbooks and Terraform modules that we know and are trusted and are, are fairly opinionated in terms of implementing logging and all the you know, permission sets and whatnot. Um, we are starting to recommend uh, Vault and um, and boundary for kind of a zero trust posturing, but these are these are still being kind of like explained to clients a lot. Especially boundary seems um, like a, a kind of a form of overkill to a lot of CTOs and CIOs. Um, but yeah, we're trying to really keep it simple. So, but I would say we're kind of staying away from cloud formation as much as we can, um, trying to you know roll you know decent opinionated playbooks with. Terraform. Ansible is kind of our configuration management tool of choice um, for some of those things you just need to orchestrate with Ansible. Uh, and then we're pushing Kubernetes as much as possible, like most everybody, you know, EKS and, uh, you know, climbing the tool chain with that. We do see some of the startups that, you know, maybe having some ECS is more palatable. And so, uh, we can quick launch an ECS cluster to get an app up, or we can. Uh, our setup time for EKS is probably you know two weeks. 
whenever it comes to implementing EKS or any Kubernetes uh, environment, um, how much how much control do you give the developers in their ability to self-serve on that? Like, do you have them locked down to specific namespaces or do you just say, here's the Kubernetes thing, deploy what you need to? So we like backstage. Um, oh, right we on. like the like the Argo CD. So we show them how to use that. We show them, um, but we own the Kubernetes cluster. So um, we want to own the infrastructure in in a way, and then partner with our infrastructure friends, our managed service, you know, our MSP type friends for the the cluster itself. But they own the pod, they own everything surrounding the application, and we we show them where to access those bridge configurations. Yeah, I, I think the setting up of a new application needs to get shifted to the developers as soon as possible. That's where we've seen the most like rub in terms of, okay, well, it's a new application. Can you guys do it? And then the dialogue is, is okay, well, we've given you new application documentation. Here's your Argo CD you know, uh, stuff. Here's how you set up the pod. Here's where you need to add these things. We try to kind of do um, a lot of shoulder-to-shoulder work in that early stage. And then one by one, the developers will kind of get on the the idea of, oh, I can self-serve, I can do this. I set up an app last time. And finding those champions within the developer organization um, is essential, you know, folks that have done that learning. And so you can go, hey, you know, Jimmy's done this before. And then that starts to kind of cross-pollinate the new app setup. I'm curious to know how you get most of your clients are the are you doing outbound uh lead generation or do you get mostly inbound at this point no it's been all referral so a lot of my business has started um just you know doing one good client engagement at a time and then that client engagement rolls into others um yeah we we've grown grown very fast by referral and then most recently, you know, partnering with MSP companies that want to stay more centered around the um, around the compliance aspects and the IT aspects of the cloud, and give separation of duties to the customer out of the box. Um, but they don't really want to touch the applications. And so, app modernization, the DevOps migrations, uh, we've done a bunch of those. Uh, we did a particular client that had 288 applications. And they wanted to lift and shift that mostly. So we were able to deploy Kubernetes and get some of their more modern, you know, in-float stuff moved into containers and over into Kubernetes and kind of give them that as their new way of doing things. And they they wanted that, like, this is the future. But then they had so much existing uh, application footprint that we ended up setting up CICD for 280 applications. So it's kind of a factory operation. Yeah, you know, just jam it out. (laughs) I love those problems, though, that can be turned into like an agile problem where it's like, hey, with this many people, we're able to accomplish, you know, 12 a week. And you got this many. So do the math. That's how long it's going to take. How can we accelerate? You know, what steps can we cut out? Um, But we did lift and shift some really sorry excuses for applications too, like, you know, a, a maybe an application that was a particular way of getting at some data that could have been easily combined with oh. another application or 
um, you know, we, we, we questioned the usage of some of those applications. So then a follow-up question. Um, are you mostly selling to CTOs or you mentioned CIOs? Uh, who, who are you mostly sort of, you know, interfacing with at the sales level? It depends on size of company. So we work mm-hmm. with a lot of CEOs. Uh, we can do product strategy. Um, so we can do the product development end to end, including the roadmap, the product strategy, the, you know, the whole plan of your product launch. And so in those engagements, we're working with the CEO or co-founder. Um, at the enterprise level, we tend to be working with a CTO um, or uh, because we do want to have the well-rounded team. I and mean, we feel like we're doing our best work when we have, when we're tied to an initiative and we have developers, DevOps, QA, project manager, all kind of working towards that same goal together. And there's a little autonomy there. Um, with some of the larger organizations, we're reporting into like a VP of a particular business unit. So it may just be, you know, DevOps augmentation or data engineer augmentation. Um, but I would say those are those are more rare uh, that we're mm-hmm. kind of just augmenting a, a specific role. Is there anything else you would like us to talk about um, or questions that we should be asking that we haven't thought of or, or haven't done yet? Um I guess I'm curious about your guys' thoughts about um, kind of this idea of the uh, DevOps as a service and the value it might bring to have like an external group able to handle the three o'clock in the morning call. Or, you know, have you seen that work for any organizations where they kind of outsource the SRE function? Because I think that's what I'm really talking about when I talk about DevOps as a service. You know, maybe a little pipeline updates or pipeline maintenance. But really, I think it's more the value for in my mind is to have somebody that knows enough about your applications to jump in an SRE function. Have you seen anything like that work where SRE is kind of done externally or, a you know, a follow the sun application support? I haven't seen it firsthand, um, but in principle, I agree with that approach. I mean, uh, we kind of, we were talking about earlier, you can't just kind of put DevOps in a box. And a lot of people do that. People don't realize that that's kind of the antithesis of what DevOps was originally meant to mean. Um, so, you know, without trying to get too philosophical and, and, and definition oriented, uh, I think it's important that, as you mentioned earlier, that the developers are empowered to to self serve as much as possible. And there's always going to be a barrier you know, at some point. You know, if if the physical server is on fire, the developers probably can't fix that if it's in a different state. But uh, as as far as their application goes, you know, the developers should be able to do their own deployment, their own troubleshooting. It probably means they have access to logs or alerts or whatever metrics and, and observability stuff. Um, rollbacks and all that, all that stuff. If the developers have access to, to do those things, then yeah, I mean, that, like you, I think you said that, you know, that's kind of the idea of a platform team. And I think it, I think that's a reasonable place to put that, uh, that uh, sort of boundary. You know, if, if you want to outsource that platform team, call it SRE or whatever, I, I, I think that's, I think that's fair. And I think it's completely fair for a company to want to be, say, product focused, and and not focused on managing Kubernetes, 
that's fine. That's, that's appropriate. And at a certain scale, it's necessary. You know, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a three person startup, <clears throat> you don't want one and a half people dedicating their, their lives to managing Kubernetes. <laughs> you want to outsource that to some company that can do it for you, at least mm-hmm. until you grow to a certain point, you know, once you're DHH, then, then, you know, you start having different mm-hmm. conversations, but <laughs> yeah, I think that's a value. So, yeah, I think assumption. it makes perfect sense. Although I, you don't want one and a half ahead. people dedicated to Kubernetes, but you want a number greater than zero people dedicated to Kubernetes. Yeah, but, but the point is that at, at a small scale, it just doesn't make economic sense to have any person on your small team knowledgeable enough to take advantage of Kubernetes. But you might want to use Kubernetes if it's appropriate for you, but that means you have to outsource it to somebody else. No, that's great. I mean, that's what we think is is needed as we we've come in, done the pipelines, and then we know we're leaving them in a bad place to just end the engagement. So we're trying to kind of fractionalize yeah. that that after support. Um, you know, to just support their evolution, you know, forward and still be a somebody You'll still have like internal communications. Oh, here's what I was going to ask. So one of the things we struggle with a bit, since it is a pool of people, right? It's a it's a team of people. So one thing we struggle with a bit is uh, we have some access patterns that we do. So of course you can, you know, federate your AWS single sign-on stuff. You can kind of link organizations and say, okay, you manage your list of users, we'll manage ours. Um, but then we tend to want to have Vault inside so that we can just provision access on an as-needed basis so we can log it. But um, have you seen any kind of access patterns? Because it's a different problem. You know, you don't want to be onboarding and offboarding all the time, right? I don't want to pass my onboarding, offboarding problem onto the client. So we're uh, we're trying to be creative by having, you know, obviously, you know, federation through the AWS account but then also Vault protecting the actual services. And then, you know, we're even thinking about uh, mandating boundary also so that, um, you know, we can provision access on this kind of hive mind approach. Any thoughts on that? A few. I want to go back to the um, the previous question. They were talking about DevOps as a service. I think there's actually a really strong model that you can look at for inspiration on that because the developers love services like um like webflow which is a no code building and deployment solution uh heroku is really strong yep uh, vercel is killing it with Next.js and their hosting service and so when you look at why all of those are successful it's because of what you were just describing that the developers can write their code and then there's a structured, defined way for them to get their code into production. And I think those services work great for smaller development teams. And then when you hit scale, you know, I think it makes sense to use something like AWS. But if you were to marry those two together, say, here's your AWS account with your managed services managed by us that give you a developer's experience like um, like Vercel, I, I think you would have to hire security to beat raving customers away from <laughs> right, your sure. office. Yeah, the the platform as a service is definitely a cool trend. I mean, I remember using Engine Yard back in the day for a startup. Oh yeah, those are those <laughs> are really cool that. plays. Um, 
the markup on those was usually the same markup as what the MSP is wanting. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that the MSPs will need to give like more of a full service pipeline to their end customer. And I, I think that's essentially the the bridge that we're building with our playbooks and our we set up this stuff pretty quickly at this point. Um, and then, you know, are immediately getting into the kind of the uh, the nitty gritty of the cloud solution. Yeah, because as you scale, you know, it, it becomes there's a few more one-off scenarios that you have to address that you can't just throw out a blanket solution for. Um, but going back to Office, like I, I understand, really appreciate your the way that you you phrase that. You know that you need to be able to onboard and offboard people on your team without harassing your client every time to make sure they have the right access. Uh, have you had any success with using something like Okta to do SSO provisioning across multiple applications? Yeah, so um, we, we certainly have. And when we do the dedicated model, that's totally fine. Like they'll get onboarded into the enterprise account. They'll get an enterprise identity in the client's account. But in DevOps as a service, we want to kind of dictate um, today who's going to do that that work, right? We we may want to make oh, more. I see. We may want so it's more of like, you know, you would never want to give security access to some group of people. Like I'm going to give you an email alias. Go give me, you know, administrative keys with an email alias. Like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, so we're trying to think of more of a separation of duties where we can control access, but then we like the the vault um, temporary AWS keys and we like boundary for kind of a zero trust um, counterpoint to the uh, uh, more federated uh, access pattern. Yeah, that's interesting. I've not um, <clears throat> I've not tried to solve that or, or thought about it, but I... It, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if we send Jonathan out to work on a particular task today, it would be nice to know that his credentials expire at the end of the day. Correct. That's exactly the idea that, uh, so Vault gives you that. And I'm sure you could use some kind of um, AWS uh, thingy too, um, you know, a little more native if you didn't want the HashiCorp product involved. But um yeah, we, we like this um, this idea of giving situational access uh, for a particular service. And then what Boundary does is Boundary gives you the service. So say, you know, for this task, I need to connect to um, an RDS Postgres instance. What it will do is it'll mount localhost at some port and localhost at some port on your local machine is the RDS per, uh, Postgres instance in, you know, production or whatever. So it's it's basically an alternative to VPN. So a VPN mm-hmm. wouldn't be zero trust. VPN would be like, okay, I give you access. You access the entire, you know, network topography. You're in inside the network. So what a lot of organizations are talking about is let's take VPN away, replace it with boundary, and then someone requests access to a service, and then they have to document the situation. So that's matching up with like a zero trust standard. And so we're seeing those two as kind of a a give and a take 
to letting us control our user group inside of our own AWS. So we'll control those users. You know, we'll ensure that only, uh, you know, that we onboard offboard properly. But by putting them in this SSO group, then they should have to go request these things from Vault or Boundary. And is that integrated with your, your ticketing or tracking system to document that? We have discussed it because uh, we think that the opening of a ticket could just do the vault boundary request for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. We, we have thought about that kind of no ops um, upgrade to what we're doing now. Um, but the reason why I was asking you is because I'm having this conversation a lot and trying to explain the value of these federated accesses um, and then the the upgrade to security that the zero trust like boundary and vault are providing. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really cool problem, especially in a post COVID world where we're all sitting at home, letting our kids use our, you know, our computer to do their online classes, you know, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. We've actually been looking, uh, Cloudflare has a zero trust product. that sounds very similar to boundary. And we've actually been looking at that for those exact same reasons. That and for us, um, like at some point, managing a VPN just becomes a huge hassle. You know, like our AWS environment is spread out over multiple regions and and multiple AWS accounts because we're using control towers. So we have a bunch of different AWS accounts. And so managing the VPN on that is just getting to be a huge pain. We are coming up on an hour. Um, we can go longer. Um, but uh, if there's anything else that we should uh, highlight, uh, we can do that before we move on to picks. Any other questions you think we should be asking or, or other topics you want to talk about? No, I'm cool. I think okay. it's a good conversation. No, no reason to force it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it awkward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can do that. Trust me. <laughs> Usually just having me in the room is enough for that. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to picks. Um, Will, do you have any picks for us today? Do you want to start off? I do. I'm, I'm actually going to pick uh, DHH's essay about saving $7 million over five years. We will post a link to it in the show notes. And I'm curious to hear what our listeners think about that. So after you read it, um, jump over to our Reddit forum, r slash adventures in DevOps. And just completely unfiltered response. Let us hear it all right there. And um, yeah, that's my pick for today. Awesome. And we should get DHH on here to talk about it. If you're listening, DHH, we want to have you on as a guest. (laughs) He might have an opinion on it. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. (laughs) All right. I have two picks for the week. Uh, The first one is my brand new podcast. podcast it's actually not new anymore i've been doing it for a month um and by the time this episode comes out close to two months so last month yeah i know (laughs) so 2023 um but it's related to the topic of devops it's specifically about go and uh, me and a co-host uh are doing a weekly go news program called cup o go so you can go to cup o go dot dev that's just the letter o not like of it's not cup of go it's cup o go dot dev uh, you can subscribe in all your favorite podcasting listening tools, whichever one you're using right now. You can subscribe in that same one. 
Um, and uh, the promise is keep up to date with the Go community in 15 minutes a week. So we do 15 minutes of Go news. And then we usually pad it with another 20 to 30 to 40 minutes of an interview or some other discussion. Um, but you can skip that part if you don't want it. If you just want to keep up with the Go news, 15 minutes a week. That's all it takes. Hold up. What's this other co-host stuff? Yeah, what do you mean I, other co-hosts? I, I didn't want to tell you about this, that, Will. <laughs> this is how I find out in the middle of a podcast? <laughs> Jerry Springer style. And, and he's right here. Come on in. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, it's a good thing I keep a folding chair in my office for justification. <laughs> yeah, so I have a co-host uh, we met online. His name is uh, Shine Nick Mod. I hope I said that right. Um, Hebrew name. He's in uh, Tel Aviv. And he's a great guy. So listen to the show. Um, listen to how we get along. And once you listen, Will, you might not be so jealous anymore. We don't have quite Whatever. the same rapport that you and I do. So. Whatever. I'm over it. <laughs> My other pick, which Will might need now. Um, <laughs> I, I learned about a new brewery here in Amsterdam. I don't know how broadly this beer is is uh, uh, shared around the world. Uh, but there's a new brewery, or at least new to me. And I'm going to butcher the name, but I think it's pronounced Gebrouwen door Vrouwen. I'm sorry to any Dutch speakers out there. Uh, that translates to brewed by women. So it's a bunch of women started this brewery and they have some cool beer flavors um, and they have a bar. If you're ever in Amsterdam, you can go check out their bar and try it directly. If you're not in Amsterdam, like most of you are, um, maybe you can order it from a local beer store i don't know if it's if it's uh, exported yet or not but uh that's my second pick for the week nice how about you ben any uh picks from you yeah so um i've been reading uh, well we we say reading what we really mean is we're listening to an audiobook right um <laughs> so i've been reading in air quotes uh atomic habits um by james clear i think um but it's it's really good and then I'll follow that up with a bit of a rant, um, just a, a check against ourselves here. Uh, I've recently uh, re- realized that I have uh, this habit of the reels, right? You, you, you realize that you're on YouTube reels flipping and five, 10 minutes has gone by, right? So um, mm-hmm. I, and then I have kids. Uh, so I also kind of noticing these, how addictive that can be, right? So uh, what was the Carl's June quote? Like, if we don't make the unconscious conscious, then we'll, uh, we'll be, we'll, we'll have failure, but we'll blame it on fate. Right. Cause we won't realize that we're, we're doing these things. So there's a little bit of a rant and I've been talking about it internally inside the company. Just check yourself, right? Because the, the habits that cause you to procrastinate responsibilities are, have like this anxiety consequence, right? We're not doing what we, um, the advantage of being uh, good time managers is that we can have discipline, but then we get the freedom from that discipline, right? We we get the things we need to do out of the way, and then we can do the things we enjoy to or spend time with family. And I've just been really like convicted or thinking a lot about valueless activity and the difference between rest and recreation. So some types of recreation may not actually be restful. And so that if we're tired all the time, we got to kind of look at, okay, well, are we really doing rest or are we just doing rest, you know, recreation? And so I would put... Or GRPC. (laughs) Rest, restful, GRPC, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, the atomic habits, um, was good to kind of think about that. You know, I've, I've done some deleting of some apps on my phone for periods of time just to see uh, about deprogramming some of those habits. And, um, and just, I think the, the younger folks, the professionals we work with, they may be having, uh, they might even not recognize that they're having higher anxiety because of procrastination aids. Right. And then the weight of the things is kind of stacking on top of me. I have college, a college age kid, and he's talking about his peers don't even realize how their time is being spent. They're not auditing their time spent. They're getting behind in classes and then they got to do kind of a catch up or work off the debt, so to speak. And, and, um, that's really stressful to feel like you're in a deficit and have to dig yourself out. And so are we doing to ourselves that, um, so I thought Atomic Habits was really good. Talks about habit forming, and um, and then I've been talking to my team internally about this, just so that um, we can. I want them to have work life balance. It's not about grinding all the time. It's just about staying on top of things so that you don't have to feel that pressure and that anxiety of of the, um, you know, the the tasks that you put off. Absolutely, couldn't couldn't agree more. And I think it's nope. a great thing to point out. The book has been in my radar for a very long time, but I haven't read it yet. So I, I probably need to add it to my actual reading list now. Move it from the backlog to uh, in progress. To, to the sprint backlog, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will, uh, you, you, the the chat, the, the RESTful versus GRPC um, <laughs> joke was really good. So I had a couple that I'll just tack on there. So, okay. um, you know, I tried to date Java, but I was just objectified. So, you know, I had to, uh, had to really, you know, yeah. consider what they're doing. But then I tried to date JavaScript, but I never got a callback. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we need the little, but I'm seeing sound effect. Ching. You have to control yeah. that, don't you? Oh, I got to find it. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sound effects provided by Internet Explorer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Um, I've enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for coming on, Ben. Uh, yeah. Hope you've enjoyed it too. I tried to date. I, I tried to date C plus plus, but he was just way too messy. He had so much garbage laying around. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might need a new channel for uh, stand-up programming comedy. <laughs> so, no, it's great around. talking to you guys. Uh, it's great talking to you guys. I c- next time, I'll time all those jokes a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll work on my on my timings for the prompts here too. The audio prompts. <laughs> we'll just blame internet lag. That's, yeah, that's that's always easy to blame anyway. All right. We'll do our new podcast where uh, dad jokes meet computer jokes. <laughs> Well, I, I guess we'll just keep talking until Will hits that stop button. I can't. I don't oh, know. shit. You're waiting on me. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I need to see everyone. <laughs>